Thank you, Pastor Dave, for that ministry and music. This is, of course, Labor Day weekend, a time in which we celebrate the laboring person's dedication and hard work. I hope that uh, you can enjoy the day off tomorrow and that perhaps you have some outside uh, events planned, maybe a picnic or outing. We're supposed to have some wonderful weather, and I trust that you'll have a, a great time. Well, today I want to talk to you about laboring, but laboring for the Lord. The theme of this morning's message is that we need to work hard at accomplishing the purpose for which God has saved us. Let me say that again. We need to work hard at accomplishing the purpose for which God has saved us. The key verse this morning is Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. And though we read this whole section... Uh, I'm actually only going to preach on verses 12 and 13. There's plenty here for that, and we will look at the uh, ensuing verses at another time. Philippians 2.12 So then, my beloved, just as you always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This is one of those portions of scripture that is often misunderstood. This is not a portion of scripture that is teaching a salvation by works. This text does not say, work for your salvation. We used Ephesians 2, 8, 9 as a call to worship this morning. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. I don't think there's a a more clear verse in the Word of God that says salvation comes not as a result of our efforts, but as the grace of God. So, this is not an exhortation that you need to work in order to save your soul. Nor is this a verse that teaches us that we must work in order to keep ourselves saved. That uh, we need to work now so that we do not lose our salvation. Philippians 1.6 said, Being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perform it to the day of Jesus Christ. He who has saved us will keep us. John 17.3 says, This is life eternal, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Jesus has given us eternal life, not temporary life, not probationary life, but uh, eternal life that will never be taken from us. So this is not an exhortation to keep yourself saved. Well, if it's not an exhortation to save ourselves, and if it's not an exhortation to keep ourselves saved, what is it that we are to do according to this verse? Well, it says work out your salvation. The word to work out would also be appropriately translated as to accomplish. The main thrust of this verse is that we are to accomplish the purpose of that God had in saving us. The purpose that God had in saving us. Now, Philippians is a short book. It's a letter. It's intended to be read at one reading. And we go meticulously through these verses. And so, after a while, you lose sight of the forest for the proverbial trees. So let me put this in context for you. If you look at Philippians 2.12, it starts off with saying, So then, my beloved. Paul is referring to the believers at Philippi as the beloved ones. 
We are told in Philippians 1.3 that he thanks God on every remembrance for them. Offering prayer with joy in every prayer for them. Then he says in verse 12, Just as you have always obeyed. Just as you always have obeyed. He acknowledges the fact that they have been consistently following and obeying Jesus Christ. In Philippians 1.5, he says that he prays in view of their participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Until the first day until his writing of this letter. So they have been very consistent in their committedness to Jesus Christ. Right from the get-go. Right from the first day they were saved, right up into the present time. So he's not exhorting them to get right with God. Uh, They are right with God. And they have been serving him. Then he goes on to say, in verse 12, Not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Back in Philippians 1.27, he said, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent. So you see, there's a bookends to this, this particular portion of the book of Philippians. He said in Philippians 1.27, Whether I'm present or absent. Now, in 2.12, he says, in my presence, not only in my presence only, but even more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So, back to this idea, but what is that exhortation? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Well, if you look at the parallel in Philippians 1.27, I think it's helpful. It says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. He wants them to be working out their salvation. He wants them to be accomplishing the purpose for which they have been saved individually and collectively. As a people of God. Therefore, they must be of one mind, they must be of one spirit, and they must be striving together. In order to accomplish the purpose for which God has saved them. So having said that, We want to look at the reasons we are to accomplish the purpose for which God has saved us. Why? Well, the first reason that we are to be sure to accomplish the purpose for which God has saved us is because God has indeed saved us for a purpose. All too often, salvation is viewed very selfishly or self-centeredly. Salvation is often understood only in terms of what God has done for us. The blessing we receive the forgiveness that we enjoy, the heaven that we're going to, it is all about us. However, God saved us for a reason that is bigger than ourselves. God has saved us for a purpose that goes beyond our individual happiness or even our individual relationship to him. God has saved us to further the kingdom. God has saved us to promote the gospel of Jesus Christ. God has saved us with the intent that now, as Philippians, excuse me, as Ephesians 2 said, that we would walk in the good works that God had ordained for us. He has saved us for a reason. This is seen in Philippians 2.13, where it says, it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work, and then these words, for his good pleasure. For his good pleasure. And he translates that According to his good purpose. He has a purpose. He has a will. 
Ephesians 1.5, having predestinated us into the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. God has reasons for saving us, and those reasons include what he intends for us to do once we are saved. Once we are saved. And so we're exhorted to accomplish that for which he has saved us. If God did not have a work for us to do, he would have immediately translated us out of this world and into his presence the day that we knew the Lord Jesus, our Savior. Why are we still here? Why are we on the face of this earth? Why are we a part of this kingdom? We're not just biding time. We're not just to be waiting for the future being in the presence of God. But while we are here, we have a work to do. John seventeen fifteen. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou should keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. A work to do. I would then point out how this knowledge that God has saved us for a purpose should affect the decisions and aims of our lives. But notice the effect that it had on Paul for Paul to know that God had saved him for a purpose, for a reason. The knowledge that God saved the Apostle Paul for a purpose affected his life. Philippians 1.21 He said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Paul centered his life around fulfilling God's purpose for his life. He said, that's what I'm all about. For me to live is Christ. I would hope this morning, no matter what it is that we are doing, is our vocation. That we would see it under the overarching umbrella of we are here in order to accomplish God's will. We are here to further his kingdom. We are to do his work. We are here to fulfill God's purpose that he had in saving us. The knowledge that God saved the Apostle Paul for a purpose affected his decisions. Look at Philippians 1, 22 to 25. Philippians 1, 22. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean faithful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. Now notice, faithful labor. If I am going to continue on, Paul's in prison. And Paul is looking at the distinct possibility that he could die as a martyr. And as he thinks about his martyrdom, he says, I don't know exactly what to think about this. For he says, on the one hand, if I continue to live in the flesh, because he's going to continue to live no matter what, but if he's going to continue to live here on this earth in bodily form, that is going to mean faithful labor. That means there's work for me to do here. God still has something for me to do. If God doesn't have anything for me to do, he's going to take me. He says, I don't know which to choose. I'm hard-pressed from both directions. Having the desire to be part and be with Christ, well, that's much better. I'd rather be with Christ than in this prison. I'd rather be with Christ rather than all these other difficulties he has. Yet, to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. But to stay alive, that's more valuable to you. Verse 25. And convinced of this, convinced that it was more valuable for him to live than to die, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and join the faith. Paul says, I know God's not done with me yet. I know God has work for me to do. Therefore, I believe I'm going to be 
spared. I don't believe I'm going to die a martyr. I believe I'm going to come to you. But notice that all is motivated by the fact that he is convinced that God has a work for him to do and God wants him to fulfill that work. We should be convinced as long as we're taking breath. As long as you're alive, no matter what condition you are in, no matter what circumstance you find yourself in, no matter what degree of health or lack thereof, you ought to be convinced that as long as I'm on the face of this earth, God has something for me to do. God has a reason for me being here. And I need to fulfill that purpose. I need to accomplish that reason. Thirdly, the knowledge that God saved the Apostle Paul for a purpose affected his aims or goals. Look at Philippians 3.12. Just trying to give you an oversight of how all this fits together. King James 3.12. Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ. A little tough to understand. NAS. But I press on in order that I may lay hold of that which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. NIV. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. I press on in order to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. Christ grabbed me. Christ saved me. Christ did a work in my life and in your life. And Paul says, when he grabbed hold of me, he gave me something to do. And now, I try to grab hold of that. If you think of the old merry-go-round, uh, where they had brass rings, and you could try to, to reach the, the brass ring that was coming out of the arm, try to grab that. That was your purpose of being on that merry-go-round, to try to grab that brass ring. If you did, you got a, a free ride uh, on the merry-go-round. Well, we're supposed to grab the brass ring. We're supposed to lay hold of that thing for which Jesus Christ has saved us. It was Paul's supreme motivation in life. He said, I press on. I work hard at it. I reach. I struggle. If you can think of that, if you've been on that merry-go-round uh, that had that arm come down, you know, you're, you're leaning, you're, you're stretching, you're, you're, you're giving it your all in order to get that brass ring. Paul is working hard in order to accomplish the purpose for which God had saved him. The application is rather simple. We need to work to lay hold of that for which God has laid hold of us. As a result, Paul could say at the end of his life, 2 Timothy 4, 7, I have fought a good fight. I finished my course. I have kept the faith. I know of no greater epitaph. I know of nothing greater that can be said of an individual. That when they die, that they have fought a good fight. They've kept the faith. They've been consistent in their walk with God. And they finished the work that God had given them to do. What more could you ask in life? May that be said of you. May that be said of me. When we die, we've kept the faith. We've fought a good fight. We've accomplished the purpose for which God has saved us. If you can say that, you're ready to die. You're ready to be in the presence of God. Second reason that we are to be sure to accomplish the purpose <coughs> excuse me, for which God has saved us is because God has enabled us and continues to enable us to accomplish his purpose. Put more bluntly, because there's no reason not to. There's no reason not to. There's no reason not to accomplish the purpose for which God has saved us. 
because God gives us all that we need in order to do so. God is at work in us. Philippians 2.13 It is God who is at work in you. And if you have an NAS, it says for. If you have a King James, it says wherefore. It is the purpose. It's the reason. Why are you to work out the salvation that you enjoy with fear and trembling? Because God is at work in you. He enables you. This is consistent with Paul's teaching in Philippians 1.6, where he said, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perform it to the day of Jesus Christ. You will always have the enabling power of the Spirit of God. God gives us two things. He gives us the desire to work. Notice verse 13. For it is God who is at work in you both to do two things. First, to will. To will. To will what? To will his good pleasure. God has placed within us, by his grace, a desire to please him. A desire to please him. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, there is present within your life at some level a desire to please him. You can resonate. There is an acknowledgement by everyone who knows Christ the Savior that I ought to be serving him. I ought to be serving him. He has given us that desire. And not only has he given us the desire, but he has also given us the energy to work. Verse 13. For it is God who is working you both to will and to work. He grants us gifts. He grants us calling. He enables us by his spirit to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And God gives us the responsibility to do his work. Now we're to act, verse 12. Work out your salvation. Work out your salvation. So God is at work, so you be at work. Here we have the wonderful meshing of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And I, I, I choose those words carefully. A meshing of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. They come together. They're interwoven. They interrelate. God's sovereignty and human responsibility. I think that it is an error. It is erroneous. To talk about trying to hold God's sovereignty and human responsibility in a proper balance of tension. I don't think we have on the one hand God's, human, uh, God's sovereignty and on the other hand human responsibility and they're equal and they're balanced and you need to always be talking about both. I believe they're integrated. That they come together. That they mesh. That there's a relationship between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And they're not held in balance. In fact, the scripture is overwhelming on the side of God's sovereignty. But in that overarching role of God's sovereignty, that does not negate our human responsibility. In fact, it dignifies it. In fact, it enables it. Because God is sovereign, because God is at work, that then means we can work. And we have no excuse. Because we're not to simply pull ourselves up by the bootstrap, but we are to rely upon the enabling power and ability that God gives. And we're not to decide for ourselves what we should do with our lives, but we should be seeking to 
ascertain the will of God. It's not like we go to the high school guidance counselor and they say, what do you want to do with your life? The response ought to be, well, I want to do what God wants me to do with my life. So that God's sovereignty and human responsibility come together. Now, as we think about this intermeshing, we need to guard against two extremes. First, we must guard against an improper application of the sovereignty of God in our spiritual formation. The improper emphasis, I think, can be seen in the popular words, and maybe you've heard this phrase, let go and let God. Let go and let God. I think that's very unbiblical. You don't let go and let God. There is a lot of energy that is to be expended in the Christian life. We cannot simply be passive. It's wrong to think that our responsibility is to simply rest in God's grace and to merely let him work in us. For he is at work for us to work. In Philippians 2.13, the word for work is the very same. He is at work. He is energizing so that we would be energized. So the one danger is to sit back and say, I have no responsibility. God's going to do what he's going to do with me. And so I just can't wait to see what he's going to do. God's going to create within me the desire to will. So I don't feel like doing anything now. So I'll wait for God to move. God's going to produce a work in me, so I'm going to sit around and, and wait for this work to be accomplished. Can't wait to see what God's going to do. Use me, God, while I sleep. Uh, that, that, that's the wrong attitude. It isn't let go and let God. But the other wrong attitude is an improper emphasis on our ability or desire. Characterized by the adage... God helps those who help themselves. That's wrong, too. It isn't that we take the initiative, and as we take the initiative, then God acts. And so God's sitting in heaven and saying, man, I wish they would do something so I can do something. I wish they would act so I can act. That's wrong, too. In that scenario, grace is restricted to a little more than spiritual aid. God will help us along, but it's really up to us. But notice that our text says that God does not work with us, but in us. In us. So it's not a cooperative working, but it is a first agent working. God is at work in us so that we will be at work. It's a very interesting passage for... It brings, in one verse, two verses actually, the whole concept of God's sovereignty and human responsibility together. And it's very clearly saying you have a responsibility. And that responsibility comes as a result of the activity of God. God saved you. He did that. We didn't save ourselves. He saved us. And as a result... He saved us for a reason. It's not our reason. It's his reason. It's not what we want to do with our life. It's what he wants us to do with our life. But he saved us. And he saved us for a reason. And therefore, our responsibility 
Intermeshing is, well, then to fulfill that purpose, to fulfill that reason. And the encouragement is that as you are doing that, he will instill within you more and more a desire to do so, and he will give you the ability that you need to, to accomplish the work. He doesn't leave you on his own. It's not what God does and what I do. It's what I do as a result of what God does. God is not going to do it for us, but God is going to equip us with everything that we need to do his work. Philippians 2.13 For God who is at work in you, both to will and to work, and again, those words for work are the same Greek word. The work of God is to be completed. Jesus said, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. We're to follow the example of the Lord Jesus. It was just depicted for us in Philippians chapter 2, the earlier verses. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. What was the mind of Jesus? To complete the work for which God had given him to do. That's what, that's what motivated Jesus. That's why he was here. He came to do the will of God. He came to accomplish the reason for God sending him. The salvation of, of his people. And so, he could say, it's done. It's done. When Jesus, therefore, received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. We are to have that same attitude that Jesus had. And that is to finish the work that God has given us to do. So the application is quite simple. When we have approached the end of our lives, are we going to be able to say, I finished the work that God is able to do, given me to do? Have I completed the task? Have I fulfilled his calling in my life? So thirdly, the third reason that we are to be sure to accomplish the purpose for which God has saved us is because we are accountable to God for accomplishing his purpose. We're accountable to God for accomplishing his purpose. Verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation. And now this phrase that we have been moving around, with fear and trembling. With fear and trembling. With fear and trembling. With fear and trembling of what? What should be causing fear and trembling in our hearts? This is an exhortation to fear and to tremble. Not to avoid fearing and trembling. So, what is it that we are to fear and and what are we to, to tremble about? Well, first... They are not to fear and tremble before their adversaries. Look at Philippians 1.28. Philippians 1.28. And in nothing terrified by your adversaries. We're not to be shaking in our boots when we think about the prospect of accomplishing God's will. That shouldn't scare us. We shouldn't worry about the earthly ramifications of all that. Of what it might mean. Paul is saying... My life is going to be poured out as a drink offering, and that I rejoice. He's not trembling and fearful about that. He's thankful that he can serve God in that capacity, because God gave him the will to do so. God is at work in him to accomplish it. They are not to fear and tremble before Paul. Philippians 2.12 Not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. They are not to be fearful of letting Paul down. I submit to you that we're to tremble 
before God. Tremble before God. Listen to these verses. Ephesians 6, 5. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. The fear and trembling is in relationship to Christ. Not by way of eye service as men-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Do this not to please men. Do this to please God. The fear and trembling is that we'll fail to please God. That God is going to be displeased. That we will have dishonored his name. There should be no greater motivation in life. No greater calling than to hear the words, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. If you don't hear the words, well done now, good and faithful servant, it doesn't mean you're lost. But it means you haven't done well. And you haven't been particularly faithful. It should terrify us to recognize that possibility and not want that to happen. Listen to Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 4. So then men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now it's required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I carry very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. And do, indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. It is the Lord who Judges me. In Philippians, excuse me, in, in 2 Timothy, Paul says, I charge thee before the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say a bunch of things. And then he says, I fought a good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept my faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Not only to me, but also to all those who love his period. Paul says, I finished the course, and the result is a crown of righteousness has been laid up for me that the righteous judge is going to give. That's the fear and trembling. That we're going to miss out. We're going to have failed to accomplish God's purpose for his life. These are very subtle things. Very subtle things, but very important things. I have a few pet peeves, and one of them is Accountability groups. Accountability, I'm not big on accountability groups. To me, that's a secular psychology. Because we're not to be accountable to each other. We're to be accountable to Jesus Christ. And if we're more accountable to each other than to God, there's something wrong. Time and time again, the scripture says, not as pleasing men. Not as looking to men, but looking to God. We shouldn't be afraid or fearful of letting someone else down. We should be fearing letting God down. And you see, that's right in this text. For notice Philippians 2.12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, these words, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. It shouldn't matter if Paul is there. It shouldn't matter if their accountability partner doesn't show up. 
It shouldn't matter if the person who led them to Jesus Christ is not there. It shouldn't matter. What should matter is their accountability to God. That should be enough to drive them. That should be enough to drive us. And if anything else drives us, we are inevitably going to come up short. Because the ultimate purpose isn't to please Him. The desire to please Him should be sufficient in and of itself, regardless of what anybody else is doing. Whether there are Christians in your school or not, it doesn't matter. Whether there are Christians at your workplace or not, it doesn't matter. Whether you're the only Christian in your block, whether you're the only Christian in your school, whether you're the only Christian in the state of Pennsylvania, whether you're the only Christian in the United States, it doesn't matter. We are to accomplish the purpose for which God has saved us. Why? Because he's at work. He's at work. And that's enough. That's reason enough. That's enablement enough. That's motivation enough. Work to please him. So the fear and trembling is that we would not find ourselves to be pleasing to him. Notice in context, Philippians 2, 9 For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those which are in heaven and which are on earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God the Father exalts Jesus. And Jesus in turn exalts the Father. Brings him glory. That's the motivation. That God will exalt us. And again, not simply so that we're exalted, but we in turn can use that exaltation to bring honor and glory to God. Paul is convinced that God is going to use him. And being convinced of that, he's going to use whatever power and glory comes his way to reflect on the person and work of Jesus Christ. We are to look to be exalted by Christ, not by men. We shouldn't be motivated to serve as a result of somebody patting us on the back. Now, everybody loves to be patted on the back. Don't quit patting me on the back. I love it, okay? Uh, I appreciate when somebody says, I enjoyed your service or, or it was meaningful. It's a good thing. We should compliment each other. We should encourage each other. We should help each other. It doesn't negate the aspect of trying to spur one another. In fact, the scripture says that we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, but rather we are together to provoke one another into love and good works. We're to stimulate each other. Just as this sermon is intended to stimulate you to, to, to serve and honor and glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. But the point is, the point is, whether anybody says thank you or not, whether anybody says, well, I appreciate your hard work, I, I, I'm thankful for the many hours that you put in preparing that Sunday school lesson. Or I, I noticed that you're out here mowing the lawn. Or thank you for, for uh, manning the, the sound system. Or thank you for cleaning the church. Whether anybody comes up and thanks us or not. Now here's the real toughie. And that is whether people come up and even complain to you 
<laughs> yeah, mow the lawn, but I see you missed a spot over here. <laughs> Not thank you, but finding fault. Huh. Type the bulletin, but I saw that misspelled word. Uh, helped it out in the kitchen, but dropped that dish, didn't you? I heard a clatter. We are to serve God not only when others don't encourage us, but even when they discourage us. And some Christians seem to have the gift of discouragement. They really do. But whether we are around someone who has the gift of discouragement or not, we're to continue on. That's why Paul is going to say in the next verse, 12, uh, excuse me, 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Grumbling or complaining. I'll get there next week. And in this you will shine as lights. You want to know the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian? According to this passage, whether you're a grumbler or a complainer or not. Whether you're a grumbler or a complainer or not. Because as a Christian, we really shouldn't grumble and complain about other people. We serve a different master. We serve a different Lord. We're all human beings. We all like to be thanked. We all like to be praised. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, the one thing, and I mean this, the one thing that ought to, ought to enable us to lay our head down at night and go to sleep, thankfully, is to say, today, I've done my best to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And he knows that. He knows that. Doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. Today, he knows my heart. He knows I want to serve him. And he's pleased. And conversely, it doesn't matter how many people pat me on the back if I know deep down in my heart that today I didn't serve him the way I should. And I should take no solace. I should take no happiness. I shouldn't care a lick if other people are happy with me and God is not. That's the fear and trembling. Let's serve in such a way that we please God. Not that we're afraid of hell. For that's not the issue. We're simply afraid of dishonoring him. I don't know if it means anything to you, but uh, I had a, a really precious relationship with my father. I respected him highly. He was a man to be respected. And as a teenager, I'll tell you, a lot of my motivation was I didn't want to dishonor him. I didn't want him to be displeased with me. I didn't want to let him down. My dad is long since dead and gone. And I've matured. And now it's not so much I care about other people. I care about God. Letting him down. Displeasing him. I have no excuse. He's at work. He enables. He empowers. The proper response to God's sovereignty is to accept my responsibility. He saved me for a purpose. Let's do it. Let's accomplish.
God's purpose for our lives. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your grace and goodness to us. We thank you that you have not only called us, but you have actually equipped us, you have have gifted us, you have granted us the, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, that there is no reason for us to fail in accomplishing your will for our lives. For you give us all the resource that is necessary. We're thankful that you even strive with us by your spirit. You create within us a desire to do so. Lord, may we not hinder your working. May we not grieve your spirit. May we be not insensitive to the tuggings. Maybe this morning you have revealed by your spirit in the heart and minds of some people ways that I could be more involved than than I am or things that are dishonoring to you that, that need to be addressed, that need to be changed. Lord, we thank you for your spirits working and moving. And I pray, oh God, that you would grant us a wholesome respect for you. That you would free us from the enslavement of trying to please others. And free us to the wonderful grace of seeking to please you and you alone. Lord, may we not be concerned about whether people think or do or say. May we be concerned about you. And Lord... Be pleased as we seek to give you the first place in our lives. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.